0: If you uh, walk in the crypt of St. Paul's Cathedral and you have an eagle eye, you might be fortunate enough to spot a very small plaque in the memory of a gentleman called William Fisk, or Billy to his mates. Billy was uh, an amazing young man. In fact, so extraordinary that actually he became the youngest ever Winter Olympics champion at the age of 17 for the bobsleigh, which is pretty impressive. He was uh, in the Bob Say team for the Americans, and four years after his first gold medal, he then went um, to the next Olympics, and he won yet again another gold medal. So two gold medals down, and looking forward to the next Olympics to see if he gets hat-trick. But in 1936, he decided to boycott the Olympic Games. It was a political protest, because they were Nazi-organized Olympics, and he was watching what's going on and decided not to go and be part of it. So perhaps unsurprisingly, a few years later, Billy did another extraordinary thing. And he decided to forge his identity and become a Canadian instead of an American, which is quite a bold thing. Most Americans I know get like, upset if you kind of think that they're a Canadian. That's right, isn't it? Come on, Americans, who are amongst here. But he decided, I'm going to pose as a Canadian, forge my identity, because if I'm a Canadian, I'm eligible to go and fight in the Royal Air Force in the war that I see is raging in Europe. So he came and joined the RAF. And on the 10th of July, 1940, those historians amongst us will know that the Battle of Britain began. It was the biggest airborne military campaign ever seen in human history. Never before anything close to it, never since anything close to it. This was epic on all scales, and it was fought over our skies, over our heads, even now, over London, over the southeast of England. Nearly 3,800 aeroplanes came down in that battle. Billy brought down three of them on a single day, and he was noted to be this natural, gifted fighter pilot. But 10 days after joining the RAF and beginning that campaign and that battle, his plane was hit. And as it was engulfed in flames, he had decisions to make and decided to try and land the plane in order that it might be saved, repaired, and made ready to fight again because every plane was going to count in this key battle. He managed to do it, brought the plane down as safe as it could be, but sadly died two days later from the injuries he'd sustained in trying to bring that plane down safely. He was part of a watershed moment. He and many others who sacrificed so much fought until this nation were nearly on their knees but just pulled through and won the Battle of Britain. And it was this watershed moment, this battle that raged. There was this watershed moment where where suddenly the Nazi forces turned their attention and went in a different direction, giving us enough time to breathe and to regroup and that was the turning point of the Second World War. Winston Churchill made many famous speeches, didn't he? But one of them that many of you will recognize, one of the phrases he said about this battle of Britain was this, never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. And so it's absolutely right that this plaque should be there in St. Paul's Cathedral to Billy, William Fiske. And on his plaque in St. Paul's Cathedral, it simply says this, an American citizen who died that England might live. He gave his life, just like many of the people in the Second World War, to establish freedom and liberty at a time of great battle and pressure. And that battle was full scale. It was incredible sacrifice, and we honor those and remember those that were a part of it. But there's an ongoing battle even today. Not that battle, that battle is done. But there's a battle that you're facing even today and it's the battle of your mind. And in fact, in many ways, we could liken it to that battle in the sense that it feels like there's, there's things coming at your mind from all different directions, things that are thrown at you, distractions. Uh, suddenly you're going one way, and the next minute you'll be having to look another direction and having to be alert in this battle. And Paul talks about this battle today in the passage we're going to look at from Philippians chapter 4. And it's so important that we engage with this. You see, what goes on in your mind is so important recognize today that this is a battleground that you need to take ground in and win. You need to learn how to overcome the battle of the mind because your thinking shapes every decision you're making. What happens later on today after service, that will be determined by your thinking, by the patterns of your thinking. You make decisions based on how you see the world and how you're relating to people around you. That's to do with what's going on in your mind. You step into opportunities as a result of your thinking. You step away from opportunities as a result of your thinking. What you think of God is so important too. Because it will shape your worship, your response, and your expectation for the purposes he has over your life. There is a battle, though, that rages in this. Let's have a look at this. Philippians chapter 4. It says this, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, petitioning, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart's Paul's desire for the Philippians is that they learn how to walk in the peace of God. That this peace that passes all understanding will become established in them. That they will be men and women who walk and carry that peace. When Paul speaks about peace, he's not just talking about like an absence of trouble or just a bit of a quiet life. When you talk about peace from a biblical term, it basically means God's best for you. All that is intended for goodness for you. That's the peace of God. So when you say, uh, in, in Jewish culture, when you might say shalom to somebody, which continues to happen even today, what they're saying is all of good's, God's goodness and blessing be upon you. That's what it means to have God's peace. And that's what Paul desires for the Philippians. But Paul knows that there's a battle for the mind. That worry and anxiety can overtake and rob you of peace who knows that distractions can come from all kinds of directions to to come in at you and distract your peace and rob you of the ability to walk in the kind of peace that Paul is talking about. I love what Erica Ariel Fox says. She's a Harvard lecturer and a celebrated author. She says this, The most important negotiations we have every day are the ones we have with ourselves. You see, there's this battle in our mind because we so often think it's out there, that, that the battle is somewhere out there, but all too often it's in here. It's in how we're thinking. It's in how we're relating. And, and we have these tapes that play over our heads all the time. We, we, we find ourselves thinking, well, I'm not good enough for this, or I can't achieve that. I'm not the cleverest in the class, and so, so I'm just not a clever one, so I can't excel. Maybe I'm not the popular one, and so I need to step away. All kinds of tapes can play in our heads again and again that speak over us and impact our thinking. It's like this battle coming against us. Sometimes lies coming against us, things that are just not true about who you are that you take hold of and think, well, maybe no one cares anyway about me. I know they say at church that God has a plan for everyone, but they don't know me. I know they they say that, that God loves everyone, but, Does he really love me? In I generation, I gen, named because it's the generation growing up with a smartphone in their hands. Any of you guys as teenagers, you're you're named, dubbed that. That's not who you are, but it's just a term to help describe and understand that generation. There are going to be extraordinary things that you as teenagers will do as a result of the culture, this moment that we live in, all the opportunities that are at your fingertips, the chances you have to impact and transform the world, the knowledge at your fingertips, the possibilities, the connections, the adaptability, the versatility, the world that is right there in front of you. There's so much good that can come as a result of that. But we also know that in your moment right now, there are huge challenges. There's a significant increase in the emerging generation of anxiety. There are significant increases around mental health issues as young people grapple with who they are, what their place is in the world and how on earth they're going to cope with the complexities that they see all around them. And what about you? How are you doing with that? I know that sometimes in my mind, things just start spiraling down. Sometimes fear gets hold of me and I just can't step forward. I I can't step into that opportunity or that conversation because fear has got a grip on me and for some reason that fear distracts me from the possibility of what's right there to take hold of. Other times when maybe You can feel ignored or isolated, alone, even in a busy city like this. And you wonder if anyone's noticing anyway. And if we'd even make a difference if you were at that meeting in that room. Would anyone even care because you don't feel like you're noticed? There are moments when I feel utterly weak, unable to make a choice, unable to influence anything. The one that really gets me is failure. When I fail when I step out to go for something and it goes horribly wrong it just sends me absolutely spiraling down psychologists lovingly call it low functioning (laughs) and I struggle to make decisions and I can't recover you know some people failure it doesn't matter it's like water off a duck's back it's like oh well never mind let's get on and go with the next thing that might be you Sadly, it's not me. I can't shake it off. I get colored by that situation and then things become heavy and difficult for me. There are days when I feel like twice my age, unable to make a decision, don't really want to even leave my room. I wonder if any of you can relate to that too. But the really incredible and great news is this. Paul in this passage gives us a clear, simple and profound four-step program to overcoming in this area of the battle of the mind. It's, it's, it's really simple in, a, in, in one sense. So we might think, oh, it's too simple. That can't work. But let's explore this because there are steps that he talks about as he engages with the Philippians in the battle of their minds in order that they might stand firm, walk in his peace, and establish God's kingdom in Philippi. And that's what his longing would be for us right here in this city tonight. So here's the first step. Step number one that Paul says is simply this. Do not worry. Simple do not worry. In fact, Paul is just echoing what Jesus said in Matthew. Jesus gathered this crowd around him and said, hey, hey, don't worry about anything. You don't need to worry. Do not worry. Now, you might be sitting there thinking now, oh, come on, that does seem too too simple. But this is just step one, and it's important to take step one of making a choice not to worry, making a choice in that. I don't know if you feel surrounded by worry or worry creeps up on you, but you can have a choice to not worry. This is like a command that actually Jesus gives. Do not worry. Paul is here saying, do not worry. Remember his context. Because you might think, oh, well, it's all right for Paul. He's the apostle, right? He's written a load of the Bible. like He's sorted. Right now, as Paul is writing this letter, don't forget, he's chained to a soldier. He's under arrest He's been shipwrecked, he's been made homeless, he's been poor, he's been, all sorts has gone on in his life. And now he's arrested, and the outcome of that arrest may very well be that he heads to his own execution. And yet here he is in that pressurized context, speaking to the Philippian church, going, Do not worry, make that choice. I've got a friend who um, he became the youngest CEO of a FTSE 250 company. Quite impressive. And, and actually on the side of that as if that's not enough to cope with as he sort of flies the globe and runs the world he was launching several little businesses on the side he had a young family like, he seemed to be juggling a million things and I remember a day when I sat him down and said Steve like, how do you do what you do like, I mean I just I can't I can't work it out and I remember what he said to me his number one thing he just said to me he looked at me and said Pete I choose not to worry and I said like okay go on and he said As soon as you start worrying, stress increases. And stress will not add any time. In fact, it will steal your time. So he chooses not to worry. Now, what's the basis upon which Steve chose not to worry? What's the basis upon which Paul says, do not worry? What is the basis upon which Jesus says, do not worry? Well, the answer is right in this passage. In verse 5, Paul says, the Lord is near. It's not that we don't worry because we, oh, we don't care now or it doesn't matter anyway and all of that stuff. That's not, that's not the reason. It's because the Lord is near. You see, Paul lived in this time only a few decades after Jesus had ascended into heaven in front of his disciples, had appeared to over 500 people after he had died on the cross and then risen from the dead. He had established himself as the King of Kings. And then as he rose into heaven, he said to everyone, I'm coming back. I will return. There will be a moment where you see me returning. And so Paul, only a few decades after this, is thinking, that could be tomorrow. I met Jesus on the road to Damascus. I've encountered him. I know he means business and he could be coming back tomorrow. But, but more than that, he's alive now and he's here by the power of his spirit. I've seen him at work. We've seen him at work even this evening. God is here and he's at work. The Lord is near. And that's the basis upon which we need not worry. He's for you. He loves you. He's with you. And you can absolutely trust him with your life, even in the complex, difficult, pressurized situations, which he has a habit of turning for good which he has a habit of turning, um, turning up within and bringing something beautiful out of something which the enemy meant for harm. That's your God and he is near. He is close. It may have been said of Billy Fisk that he was an American citizen who died that England might live and that resonates with us, doesn't it? Because Jesus was the great Heavenly citizen who died that you may live, who died that you might know freedom even from your anxiety and your worry. Do you know that's absolutely possible in him tonight? You might know that freedom. What's the next thing? Here's the first thing. Do not worry. Second step, build thanksgiving. Build thanksgiving in your life. Paul gives plenty of advice in this passage, and one of the things he says is that in everything with thanksgiving... With thanksgiving, learn patterns of thanksgiving in your life. You know, when we feel pressure, struggle, stress, strain, one of the first things that goes is thanksgiving. We end up getting so distracted by the issues that that's all we talk about. That's all that we talk about. But Paul is saying, no, 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 try and get different angles and and grow this pattern of thanksgiving in your heart and your life. Because Thanksgiving is like the oil that makes the engine go. And if you don't have the oil, that's bad news for the engine. Everything will start ceasing. But Thanksgiving, with Thanksgiving, it begins to oil things again. And stuff begins to move when you don't think it was going to move anymore. Discover ways to explore Thanksgiving. We do that when we come to church, don't we? We see friends, we see people, and, and that, that kind of builds something. But then we sing. And when we were worshipping and singing those songs, one of the things we're doing is giving thanks to God. We are collectively coming together in an act of saying, do you know what? Even in the mix of all the complexities of our city, our nation, this world, we can gather And we can give thanks that Jesus is the one who clears the darkness. That Jesus is the one who loves us. That Jesus is with us, that's for us. All the things that we were singing about tonight, they build thanksgiving in our hearts. I want to encourage you, find ways of exploring and speaking out thanksgiving. Speak it out audibly. You know, when you talk something out, it embeds in your memory in a greater way. So speak thanksgiving. But if that's not reason enough, when you start speaking thanksgiving, you begin to build a culture around you of thanksgiving. Have you ever been around someone who's full of thanks, who chooses thankfulness all the time? Maybe somebody who came through the door and you said, How are you? And then, Oh, so good. I just loved walking through the rain. I'm so thankful for the rain. Maybe that's not the natural response, but they've got this culture of thanksgiving in them. And of course, we have to be honest and real about situations in our lives. But you can find and dig up thanksgiving. And as you begin to speak with thanksgiving, people around you begin to go, oh, oh, you're thankful for that. Maybe I can grow in thankfulness too. Wouldn't it be great for us as a congregation to become the most thankful congregation on the planet Earth? You up for that? Here's the next thing do not worry. Build thanksgiving. In everything, bring prayer and petition. In everything, bring prayer and petition. That's the next thing that Paul talks about in this passage. Everything, bring everything to him, however small or large you think it is. However big or tiny, however much you think his attention is on it, bring everything to him because he's got you. When I was... um, uh, a few years back now, I, I used to be a teacher, and then after teaching I became a youth minister at a church just outside London called St Andrews in Chorley Wood. And I turned up and if I'm honest, I hardly knew what I was doing. I kind of making it up as I was going. And so I had plenty of failures and sort of working out stuff. And but God started doing something and people started coming to Christ and we saw something happening. It was a really exciting season out of which much has come. And and I, re- I remember during that time, it wasn't all easy. Sometimes it was really complex. There was one time when we had a, a big party in the, in the church, a whole bunch of young people coming and all of them bringing friends and then other people coming because there was a bit of momentum, lots of people I didn't even know. And there was a whole group of young people that came and decided to bring a whole, whole load of alcohol. Don't get any ideas. And, um, and they went into the chapel. And instead of drinking all the red wine, they decided to paint the walls with the red wine and the newly laid carpet. And I remember going in and thinking, this is not a good day. (laughs) That was one simple thing, but there were plenty of things that actually were much harder than that. And at the end of every day, I was like the church mouse because I lived in a flat in this church. And uh, my last job of every day was to go around the church and lock up the windows, turn off all the lights and make sure that everything was secure. And so I would do that late at night often because it would be late when I got home from things or whatever. And I developed this practice where once I'd done that, in the total pitch black, I would go to the front of this church where the table was and I would just lay both of my hands right down on the table and say, God, I give you everything. All the stuff I understand and I don't understand. I need you. I want you. And I began to lay things out. And sometimes, you know, that prayer was just one minute and I'd get to bed. Other times it turned into hours and was accompanied by deep tears as I tried to work out what on earth to do next. But that practice reminded me that in everything, you give it to God. You give it to God. And here's the secret. He's big enough to cope with even your most complex, difficult situations. Even the things you can't see a way through and could be distracted into anxiety over. He has a way. You have to go back to him again and again and again. It's his gig. It's his gig. If he's got great plans and purposes for you, if there are prophetic words that have been um, spoken, shouted over your life, it's him who's going to work it in you. It's he by his spirit that's going to do something in you. Not just you left on your own, but he is with you. So in everything, go with prayer and petition. And finally, three, prayer and petition in everything. Four, Fill your minds. Fill your minds. In the, battle, in the battle to overcome the battle of your mind, you have to be active in pursuit of occupying your mind with the right things. With the right things. So often we can just be passive to everything that's going on around us, can't we? We can just kind of be taking in the, whatever comes next. And, and there's it, a shot from over here, there's a shot from over here. And we're just kind of finding ourselves getting through a day. Now you have to become active. Active in the way that you think. Look at what Paul says, these beautiful verses, verses eight and nine. It says this finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, think about that. Whatever's true. It's time to do away with the lies. The lies over that, that play tapes in your head and tell you you're not good enough, you're not beautiful enough, you, you don't matter enough, you're not clever enough. Those are lies. Whatever's true, let that fill your mind. Whatever's noble, whatever's right, and that word carries the sense of justice in it. Whatever has justice in it, the justice of God. Whatever is pure, and that could literally be translated like moral purity. Whatever's morally pure, think on that stuff. You know, this is a big issue for our culture, everyone. You know it, don't you? That there is a battle going on that is seeking to drag a whole generation into utter impurity, it's, it's frontlined by this whole move of pornography. And, and as, as that kind of swells like a tidal wave across an emerging generation who feel utterly swamped by it, it's seeking to fill their minds with things that are not pure. And you know, if you fill your mind with that stuff, it will leave you ang- anxious, it will leave you isolated, it will leave you unsure about how to do relationships. It will leave you shocked at times, and it will leave you feeling numb. And that is the scheme of an enemy who is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. But God says, no, no, lean in. Be active in thinking about whatever is pure. Find what's pure. Find what's good, and think on it. Think on it. Whatever is lovely, which literally translated means whatever calls forth love. Isn't that beautiful? Whatever calls forth love. Think on that stuff. Whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, not that gossip that you hear on the playground, but whatever's excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Fill your mind. Fill your mind, Paul says, because there is so much good stuff in the kingdom that if you fill your mind with that stuff, there's going to be no space for the other stuff. And that's how you're going to start overcoming the battle of your mind. And as a result, what happens, Paul says... The God of peace will be with you. Anybody want that? The God of peace. That's Paul's favorite title for God. He calls God that more times than any other title. The God of peace. Because he wants the shalom, that peace, all that God intends for good. To be on you, to be in you, to be carried by you. He expounds it and tells us even more. You see, the peace of God, which passes all human thought and understanding, will then stand guard over your heart and mind. Like a sentinel, like an angel, going with you into your classroom, into your lecture hall, into your workplace, standing guard over your mind, so that there can be a strength of mind to overcome all that will come. And as you step into that strength, established by God, You will then become a carrier of this great peace. You know, when the Battle of Britain was finished, a relief swept this land. The pummeling of the bombs and the falling planes from the sky would cease. And it was the beginning of the end of the war, although they didn't quite know it at that moment. But that was the turning point. Maybe today there's a turning point for us a relief that will sweep this city, a freedom that will come as people watch you walking through your corridors of your schools, your universities, your workspaces, and they will turn and look over their shoulders and say, what is that peace? What is that person carrying? This person working on the Brexit deal where everything is so confusing and yet they carry a peace that is way beyond anything. Maybe you're here. This person who's facing their GCSEs and their A-levels, and yet they carry a peace in the battle of the mind. What is it about them? And as they lean in and ask the questions, they're going to discover not just your peace, but the Prince of Peace. That is Jesus at work in you. When Jesus stood in front of his disciples, risen from the dead, they were locked away in a room, uncertain and probably robbed of peace. And he stood amongst them, shocked them by his presence. And what did he say? Peace, I give you. And he didn't say it once. He paused, showed them the wounds in his body where he had hung on a cross for them. And then said again, my peace, I give you. And then he breathed on them and said, receive my spirit. May the God of peace come visit us right now and give you a peace which surpasses all human thought and understanding, a peace that will stand guard over your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus this day and forevermore. Amen.